I can't do it. We'll do it live. Okay. No. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. It's the last class before summer and teacher doesn't want to teach. <laughs> he doesn't want to prepare lessons. He doesn't want to correct any exam papers. And we're just shooting from the hip on this one. Because this is going to be a single take, we're going to do the whole episode in a single take. So this is going to be yeah. like what it sounds like if we never did any editing. If you came to a live taping of the best bits, God forbid, this is what it would sound like. So for better or worse, it's just going to be what we get in the next hour. Go out with a bang. So yeah, roll the intro. I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. <gasps> what did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes and randomly selected from... Damn it! Oh, fuck From fuck randomly sake. selected weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special. And I'm joined once again by uh, by our co-host and writer of one of the bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV, Kevin! Kevin, hello. <laughs> Back to one. You fucked it up. Back to one. Yeah, well, it's one take, so we just got to roll with it. Simple as that. Just got to roll. With How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm knackered. I can't believe we're we're at the final episode, but uh, not to panic. We'll be back um, once we take our summer holidays. And uh, but yeah, yeah, it's been a long season. So we thought this would be a nice conceit to sort of like try and do this. Uh, see what we've learned over the last. What is it? It's like four or five months at this stage. And have we perfected? We started recording in January. We started recording in January, and now it's um, it's some other month in the future. I don't know when. And um, but yeah, it's it's weird that we've done a complete season, and it's fantastic, and it's and um, I'm delighted. And yeah, as we already said, this is just a one shot wonder. This is a single. This is a episode about uh, single takes or long long takes. And um, we're going to do wonders. We're doing that with this. So, uh, yeah, we didn't know what to call this episode because, like, it's got different terms, hasn't it? If you're in the industry, they just call them wonders. But I think for the average yeah. layman, it's like a long take or a single take. No edits. No edits. And then I suppose maybe I'm going to blur the lines a little bit with the stuff I talk about because I think of something interesting. I want to, I need to get off my chest, Kevin. There's something I discovered that I just went, I need to talk about that. Ah, okay. I can tell you already that I've changed my mind two or three times on what really? my pick is, and um, I, I, I think it's changing again. But I'm sure you will steer me as as we go along, and uh, I'll change it once more before I actually say what I was thinking. But let's go for it. Yeah, let's go for it. My, um, I went and kind of like selected only a handful of films because I knew we were going to do this in one take. So I didn't want to have a big BuzzFeed list, but I actually kind of have an honorable mention BuzzFeed list. And I suppose the way to start it off, the way to start the conversation off, first of all, is Kevin, maybe I'll do the, I'll, I'll do the chronological thing. Okay. The first really notable, like big one take uh, attempt was by, of course, Alfred Hitchcock back in 1948 with his 
adaptation of Patrick Hamilton's stage play uh, Rope, which stars mm. Jim Stewart and uh, a bunch of other people. And a, a, a kind of a, a question, kind of like I said, how do how do you frame these? Like, wh- like what? What's a good question to ask when thinking about these one shots? And the question really is, is like, what does it add to the story? And uh, I think that's really it. Why use it? Why is the filmmaker using it? And what is it adding? What is it adding to the film, really? I suppose it's meant to be immersive, isn't it? You're absolutely right. Um, and in, in the case of Rope with Hitchcock, he knew he was adapting a stage play. And he, I found an interview with him and he said that because it was a stage play, he wanted to basically bring the audience onto the stage floor and make the, f- make the film move. Because mm. uh, a static image is two-dimensional. But when the image is moving, all of a sudden it becomes three-dimensional in our mind a little bit. So when we're moving through that uh, environment, all of a sudden that space, we, we are, we are, the audience is in that space with these murderers. And um, he wanted to make the audience kind of uh, a little bit of a witnesses to, yeah. to to the event, because he would mm-hmm. never. So that's what he was. He saying. would never change the structure of a play if he was adapting it. He wouldn't sort of like adapt it for cinema. He would just shoot the play verbatim as it was performed on stage, uh, because Hitchcock really yeah. believed in structure. And if the play worked, if you stick to the structure with a film, then the film will work. So that was his uh, methodology for doing those sort of stage ad- adaptations. So that was a. Uh, yeah, that would make sense then. That I suppose he was trying to bring us inside the play, but not change what the yeah. play was. Yeah, uh, but it was a tough. It's a tough thing to do, especially back then, because the cameras were, you know, pretty, you had a little bit of track, but they were literally pulling out walls. You know, they were pulling like the sets apart to try and have the camera flow across the set, and they were redressing it. So it was a big um, kind of like, you know magic exercise to pull it off and also mm. remember that like you know it wasn't they only had 10 minutes of film in a can or in a reel or whatever it was i was trying to remember how how many uh, minutes it was actually so 10 minutes so you'd have to hide those cuts yeah you'd have yeah there were several times where you would go and like you know go underneath you know have move move the camera underneath the crate or behind a curtain or something like that and in those moments he was you know that's when the cut would happen and You'd reload the, the camera and start up again. So yeah, there was there was always so there were limited doing these single takes weren't really kind of prolific back then because you were limited by the technology. You were limited by the, the actual the, the amount of the amount of film you could fill film, uh, but also the actual mobility of the the rigs at the time as well. So mm. it wasn't really a kind of a thing that was adopted uh, by other filmmakers until uh, the only other the, the major one was uh, Orson Welles did it again, another kind of like master in um, 1958's Touch of Evil. See, that was going to be the one that I was going to mention because that's one where the whole film was sold to me on the spectacular opening shot of, uh, you know, the bomb going off, the bomb being laid and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, when you're thinking about single takes, you, you, have, to th- you have to go back to... Um, uh, 1958 like with Orson Welles even though Kubrick did it the year before with Paths of Glory but that one to That's me right yeah that one to me uh feels like it's it's a definitive one where the film was sold on that on that amazing opening shot with um with Janet Lee and and oh god what's his what's his name Charlton Heston Charlton Heston <laughs> this you see this would You're be right. edited out now in the actual episode right forgetting the name of we, Charlton Heston we got but no we're going to roll with our gaffes this is just a gaff filled episode and um 
And another thing I found interesting, I uh, discovered interesting about that one is that uh, by that stage, Orson Welles kind of was on the cusp of, like, he was pretty much being pushed out by the, the major studios. So he he was on, like, you know, because he had a reputation of going over budgets and going over shooting days and all that sort of jazz. And when the production company had heard that he had spent three days doing, uh, so it was, who was it? I can't remember who actually produced that. It was oh, Universal, I'm pretty sure. Um, when they'd heard that he spent three days, like, rehearsing one shot, they, like, flipped the lid. And uh, they sent down people and all that sort of jazz. Uh, but then they actually discovered that he spent three days rehearsing a shot that would have cost him a way, like a ton of money to actually shoot and set up and more time to actually shoot. So it was actually more economical, time-wise and budget-wise, to pull off this shot. And it's a really cool shot. It starts with it is. This, um, this kind of mysterious figure, a timer being set for three minutes and the timer being attached, it's attached to a bomb and it goes in the trunk of uh, so, uh, uh, kind of a, a white convertible. Um, and the the driver, the, un- no, the unaware driver, you know, takes off in the car and we follow that car as it kind of meanders through the streets and then we peel off with Charlton Heston who is kind of arm in arm with uh, Janet Lee. And um, it is generally whose that arm was anyway, broken basically at that uh, in that whole sequence. Really? That's why she's wearing the jacket that way. She had a broken arm. Oh, mm. I didn't know that. Wow. Useless trivia for you. <laughs> I love it. I love those sort of trivia. But like, but it's cool. It's a cool suspense because you the the move itself really immerses you in the environment. That's what it does. Do you're in? It brings you into the space of this world and the feel and texture of that world and um, more than if you just had kind of static shots. And again, I think a common theme of this is like, you know, the movement of the camera kind of creates, draws an audience into the into the world, you know, more, much more. And pretty much after three minutes, the, 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 the thing blows and it's a, a real kind of, it's a good, good scene. It's a great opening to a film. Like, you it's know? a grab. Um, bum, bum. It's a, yeah, <laughs> bum, bum. But Kevin, before I go any further, um, do you want to do you want to reveal your pick now, or would you want to hold to later on? Uh well, my uh, well, so you know, when we do these episodes, we usually sort of go on a mad scramble to sort of cross-reference uh, what's out there and go like, oh, I forgot about that one, or yeah, I'm not really sure on that. But you sort of like do your mass Google foo and sort of try and cross-reference yeah. uh, what you're thinking with what's out there, and sometimes we try to come up with something which isn't what you could find online by Googling. And uh, mm-hmm. my pick, I think, no, as we just mentioned, Janet Lee, uh, I think that my pick is one that, well, it's not popped up anywhere else in any list that I've seen, but um, I'm going to mention it now on this podcast. And uh, it's Janet mm. Lee's daughter, uh, 20 years later, uh, the opening to um, Halloween. Uh, they have mm. a very uh, long opening shot, which is from the point of view of... Uh, the child, the Michael Myers is a child, as he's sort of going through the house, uh, stalking his sister as she's uh, copying off with her boyfriend for the evening, which is over in about 60 seconds. So, you know, uh, the power of premature ejaculation. Yeah. Um, but they do the whole thing of like doing the <laughs> musical chairs where they're moving lights and they're moving chairs out of the way and they're scrambling to sort of relight the, the scene as um, they're using the Panaglide, which was the very early uh, cam. And they're sort of going mm-hmm. through the whole house. Up the stairs, you get to see the, the first kill uh, through the point of view of the kid wearing the mask. And then the big reveal at the end where you find out there was a child that, that pulled off that murder. And um, I've not seen that mentioned in any other uh, list of like great uh, long takes 
And uh, it's another grabber. It's another yeah. fantastic opening to a film. So Janet Lee to yeah. Jimmy Lee Curtis's debut. I thought, that, just as you were saying it, I thought, there's the uh, the cue. That's my pick for for this category, Halloween. That's a great. That's a great pick, man. That's a great. I, I love the fact that you you're you're picking something that's not because I've as you said I've done the re- done the research as well and you, you know it's the same you know fifteen films that kind of get mentioned over and over again and rightly so. So it's kind of good to pick something that you know is a long single take but doesn't. It, it's not a trophy shot as you would call it. You no, because a lot of these um, directors that do them they send, tend to do them a lot. So it's the same sort of names tend to pop up a, mm. a lot, like. You mentioned, um, or I mentioned Path, Paths of Glory with Kubrick, and he does it again with like, uh, well, with The Shining, where Danny's sort of going down, yeah. uh, cycling around the uh, the hotel on his little tricycle. And there's, there are other directors, which yeah. I won't preempt what you're going to say, because I, I assume some of them are going to come yeah. up. But yeah, those, some directors really love the uh, opening, or not the opening, the Steadicam sort of um, tracking mm-hmm. shots that go on and on and on. Well, this is a good segue now for me. It's a perfect segue because I want to take you, I want to transport you now, Kevin, to back in time, right? You ready to come on my magic me. time travel box? All right, okay, just close your eyes. And you know where you are right now. You're, you're, Do I need to put on, on the some steps. pants? I, I, you know, I, I assume right now we've gone through the season. I just assume <laughs> that you, you, you're more comfortable pantsless, right? So I'm comfortable with you as, you know, as com- combat, uh, commando as you are. <laughs> okay, so Kevin, so stay commando, keep them loose, okay. keep them free, Love and it. Um, come with me back to 1975, right? Oh. And we're outside the Philadelphia Arts Museum. And, um, the Philadelphia what museum? And there's a couple of people here. The Philadelphia Art Museum, right? The oh, Art museum I thought you said Arts Museum. Okay. Well, there's that one too. It burns. There was someone lit a match just at the wrong time and the thing exploded. This is Skype. Um, Every time we record, I'm listening to you on Skype and I can never hear fully what you're saying. (laughs) So I heard Philadelphia (laughs) Arts Museum. (laughs) Go on. Well, sorry. you know, forget about the arses for one moment. And there's two people standing on these steps, right? There's two people standing here. There's a young lad, he's about 30 years of age, and his name is Garrett Brown, okay? And he's there with his girlfriend, and he, who will eventually become his wife. And Garrett is an inventor. Mrs. Brown. And he has, Legend. Well, you, well, yeah, Doc, he's, well, he's also, uh, he's got a PhD, so, you know, Doc Brown. Um, but <laughs> Garrett is there with his girlfriend because he we'll is going, this. he is basically, he's, <laughs> he has sunk all his money into this kind of like invention that he's come up with and he needs it to work and if it doesn't work he's gonna he's basically completely he's broke as it is and it's gonna be he's gonna be completely broke forever so he's at the top of the steps and he's going to try it and he says fuck it i might actually break my neck doing this but i gotta do it and he says to his girlfriend he says she said he says to her he said run down the steps and she's are you sure about this and he goes yeah just run for it if i fall you know you just just, just don't worry about me. You know, we need ah. to, you, you need to just keep running as fast as you can. So she starts running down the steps and he takes off behind her. But he's not, he's got something unusual on his body. He's got this contraption, this harness contraption on his body that he's sunk all his money into. And he's got his small little, like, you know, eight millimeter camera attached to this contraption. And it's, it's heavy. It's still, it's still heavy. And he, he runs down the steps after her. 
And as she reaches the bottom of the steps, she turns around and she sees he's still with him, that he hasn't fallen over. And she gets this surge of energy and she, she, she runs back up the steps again. And he's panting when he gets to the bottom and he just goes, fuck it, I'm going to follow her. And he races back up the steps after her. So what he does, at the end of it, he was kind of exhilarated. He went, geez, I didn't die. You're brilliant. It's brilliant. We're alive. But he took that camera away with him. And he and he um he got to the film development, uh, film developed, and he couldn't believe what he what he saw. It looked like the camera was floating down the steps and floating back up the steps, and he just went, "Holy shit! It works! It works!" And, is this the guy um, that invented Gar- like the Panaglide? This is guy. This is Garrett Brown who invented Steadicam. And oh wow! He, he, he this is the guy, and this is the moment. So in 1975, he shot. He has shot this this bit of footage. And it's worked, right? But he doesn't know what to do with it. And somehow he gets it in the hands of John Adelson. And in 1976, John Adelson <laughs> shoots Sylvester Stallone running up those exact same steps using the fucking Steadicam. That's, wow. that's uh, Holy Garrett shit. Brown. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah. So Garrett Brown. That's the moment Garrett Brown realizes, oh my God, I've got, uh, this is fucking brilliant. I've got, uh, this is a proper a invention. This is going to revolutionize. So he starts, he creates a, he kind of gets a few more gigs and he uh, creates this kind of like, uh, kind of like a temp, like what's the word, uh, kind of like a conceptual kind of prototype. trailer, like, you know, running after prototype well, of, of footage, like running after his girlfriend through mm. a meadow and, you know, all different types of shots. And he gets it out to a few people and it lands, he one day gets this uh, letter back, uh, mysterious letter in the post. And it's uh, kind of uh, a little bit mysterious. And it's from Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley Kubrick says, he said, I have seen your test footage and I believe it's going to revolutionize cinema as we know it. Um, (laughs) And he said, I am going to fully endorse this and I'm going to get behind it in any way I can. And there's a little PS at the bottom. And he said, PS, there's 14 seconds, there's 14 frames in your footage where we can see the shadow of your machine. If you want to keep your patent, I advise you to trim that because I, I'm uh, able to, I'll be able to work out what, what how, how does things work. This is a fact, right? Wow. And um, he calls him and he said, right. Um, so Garrett Brown, had, uh, Gar- Garrett Brown had made this thing. He says, can this, what is the maximum height that you can operate a Steadicam at? And uh, Garrett Brown says, well, he says, he says, well, we can kind of go, he said, can you go low? And Garrett Brown said, yeah, we can go low. Uh, of course, he hadn't tested the camera if we could go low or not. Um, and uh, then Garrett Brown went to his lab and he just went, I have to fucking make this thing go low because he couldn't make a go low. And eventually he, he invented kind of a low version of the st- low hanging version of the Steadicam that would yeah. run as about a, where a lens would run at about an inch from the ground. Like and a skateboard that became, point of view. Like pretty much, yeah, literally, like one inch off the the lens is one inch off the uh, uh, off the ground, and so what we why what's Garrett Garrett Brown's specific invention? Garrett Brown is basically going to be the hero of this episode. Um, he basically then uh, attributed his invention became the kind of the linchpin for one of my kind of picks for this, which is the the shining, you know, shots, and mm. specifically the one of Danny going through um, the uh, the Overlook Hotel when he's, yeah. you know, pedaling that big wheel on his trike. And it's It always sounds incredible. sometimes like we have, we have scripted the episodes where we're setting each other up. It's like, no, it's just, it naturally sort of just all sort of um, 
comes together. Uh, so it's funny. Yeah. That, just mentioned that and then it goes straight into what you were saying. That's amazing. Yeah. I never knew any of that. It's perfect. It's amazing. Oh man, wait, this guy was really blew my mind um, discovering this guy, Garrett Brown, like, you know, because um, what I love about why, why, okay, it, it raises the question to Steadicam, right? It basically opened up he the reason he did it was because he wanted to be a filmmaker himself and all he had was uh he had a dolly this big horrible ugly dolly and he couldn't move it around and he was sticking his small camera on it he just went it's so stupid he said why and his dad was an inventor actually um and he was did a folk you, singer and all this sort of stuff he did you what? ever see the um you know in uh in the exorcist where they do that sort of uh it, you think it's a steady cam shot where they're going up the stairs uh, uh you know um of the, the house uh, to the bedroom and the camera is mm-hmm. uh, what you think like steady camming up behind them but what they had to do because it hadn't been invented yet they had like the, the cameraman sitting on like a swing and you had all these winches and the people were like winching him up the stairs in order to be able to track wow. up the stairs after I think it was Ellen Burstyn without having any tracks yeah. on the steps so uh, the things that they had to do in order to, to replicate something which hadn't been invented yet. Um, and that was yeah. like, was it 1972, I think, The Exorcist was, or 74. So, um, yeah, that must have been like a godsend to people, that, that steady cam. Be- You're absolutely right, because any handheld shots were just shaky and bouncy. No matter what you, no matter what you did, they were shaky and bouncy. There was, they, there was no stabilization going on. Like we, in, in our brain, when we look at the world, we have natural stabilizers in our own heads that like if you nod your head up and down, you're still going to see a stabilized vision of the world. But a camera doesn't work that way. So you have to create this artificial you know, device, which he managed to do. And, um, and it really did revolutionize, uh, and it, you know, moving how you how a camera can move through a scene, and all of a sudden we have an explosion of single take shots. We have the ability for fl- more fluid shots and more interesting shots, which can move through a scene. And going back to the, the 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 shining one, what I love about that shining one is the sense. First of all, the sense of the floating sense, right? So there's a sense of being a ghost, right? So you're kind of floating through this environment, which is really cool. But also it manages to create a sense of drawing you into the, into that space by being Danny's kind of like Danny's your avatar in that big wheel. When he's cycling along, the sound of his wheels as it goes from boards to carpet to boards to carpet is is kind of hypnotic, isn't it? And Mm. when you're going around the corners with him, there's, you know, it's almost like you're 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 driving with him in a way. You're kind of like t- you can see him oversteer at one moment, and you're kind of wondering, you say, "Oh, that's cool." You could feel, you can actually feel his the propulsion of it. Yeah, but it's really transporting. It's transported. So you're in, you're kind of enjoying the momentum with him as he's enjoying the momentum. But when he turns that corner, and ahead of him is the two girls. Actually, Garrett Sherry Brown, is guy, Garrett Brown. The two girls, and it was Garrett Brown who shot that. Garrett Brown shot that, and he oh, said really? when he came around the corner, yeah, when he because you, a lot of people think that the cinematographers or the guys are doing all this sort of stuff, but it's the steady cam operators are specific, like you know, SWAT team guys that come in for steady cam days. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. We had a steady cam operator on Grabbers, and yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that they'll come in, they'll take over those specific shots. So um, a lot yes. of the stuff that was outside the bar. Um, with the rain machine going and they're, they're chasing people towards the, the police jeep and stuff. That was all the steady cam operator. 
Um, yeah, but, and he would yeah. come in just for those shots, and he's 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 specifically trained to use the Steadicam. Uh, you can't just you can't just pick up a camera and think you can use the Steadicam. There's a whole technique. It's like playing an instrument. Um, but yeah, what Garrett Brown said when he came, when he turned the corner and he saw those two twins, uh, you know, standing there, he's he his hairs literally stood on his arms. He literally was uh, freaked out by it himself in the moment because he was with the kid as well, watching the kid through um, these viewfinders. So yeah. it's an amazing. I I love that long take. That's one of those takes that I actually do think is fantastic, and they employ it throughout the the film, like you know, chasing Danny when Danny's been chased by you know um, Jack Nicholson and stuff like that. It's it's damn cool. Yeah, because like Steadicam sort of lends itself to those long takes because it's like uh, the Palma obviously yeah. has a, a, an amazing one at the start of um, uh, Snake Eyes. Where, well, he's got yes. loads of them throughout his career, but at the start of Snake Eyes, even though there are some hidden cuts in that, uh, you know, where they pan across like TV monitors and what have you, but uh, the mm-hmm. the scale of that where you've got thousands and thousands of extras who, um, you know, imagine imagine sort of doing a run through of that and you've got to get all the timings right and people sort of coming up to you and saying their lines and uh and uh, you know you're you're moving from one setup to the next setup and sort of keeping it all flowing if you make any mistakes yeah. having to go right back to one and start again but uh i think it's like a 12 minute take at the start of, of snake eyes and the film itself you know the film is the film but that opening is like when you think about doing a long take uh with a steadicam shot uh, that is is got to be up there with like atonement for like the the massive scale of it and the the sort of the the technical um bomb uh, what's the word it's just it's so sort of like jaw dropping to watch I found a really interesting uh, interview with the the Steadicam operator um, of Atonement and a bunch of like bunch of stuff. Like his his name is Peter Robertson, and he he gave a really interesting insight insight into the function and like the purpose of like using Steadicam in film. And he he talks about he would basically say like you know first of all you have to be go through a whole school of steady steady cam operation but he said there's he really he when it's when he's been proposed when he's been asked by a cinema a director and, and cinematographer you know to employ a steady cam or use a steady cam in a scene he will go he can he can book back and question saying well why 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 is this benefiting the story why do this in a, a you know um as one shot and in the case of Atonement, and that was going to be one of the ones I have to mention, because even though I'm not like, you know, a huge fan of Atonement, I really admire it. And I really admire the 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 long Steadicam shot in that. It's more impressive to me than 1917, which is an entire movie that sort of like employs long takes and Steadicam. Yeah, that That whole absolutely. opening in Atonement, I think it's, uh, it's, it's unreal. And the reason, do you know why they did that in the Steadicam? Now, first of all, it's a nice, okay, it's okay, it's a nice stylistic thing. But in actual fact, like in the case of Orson Welles, it actually was cheaper. It actually turned, if they were to shoot that scene, like with locked off shots, you know, the extras would have increased, the the the, the sets they would have to build would increase. But instead, were they by reusing kind of, extras then? Were they sort of like farming people from one section to the next section, depending on where they were pointing the camera? Was that sort of how it was cheaper? No, no, not that. I think it was literally, they literally had to build less. They literally kind of said, because it was just, it was, oh, they, they were going the to create the same effect. Yeah, yeah. keep by, by having the point of view very, very specific. They were able, able to focus in on a much more, 
isolated mm. area and rather than kind of like to create the same sense of immersion, if you know what I mean. So it was kind of like a cheat, but but it was an incredibly long one. Like, you know, he, he, he walks, that trek for him was over a quarter of a mile. And the feat of actually pulling off the one and shining, it's basically, it's set, if, I'm sure everyone knows it's like set after the, after Dunkirk and mm. um, everything's gone to, gone to crap and you've got soldiers wounded coming on the beach and all this sort of stuff. And we're following James McAvoy as he's coming up the beach. And, um, and basically, you know, the, to actually pull the shot off, uh, he, the Peter Robson, the camera operator, said he said I physically can't do this. I I physically they're they're heavy rigs to hold, and he said I can't go. And he had to climb up sand. A so of a you mile. know what it's like. Wow, fucking hell. Yeah, but how they did it was they used different contraptions. So he would for the sand they had him on this like uh, rickshaw thing. So he would like step onto the rickshaw and they'd pull him up right to the kind of like the far as as far up the sand they could. Then he would get off the rickshaw and he would like trudge up the sand. You know how it is to climb sand on your own, not a mind carrying a big piece of equipment like that. And then yeah. he would get onto the embankment where he goes and he does this uh, one. Uh, he kind of circles the the soldiers who are singing, the Welsh soldiers who are singing that beautiful piece of music. And he walks around them, them and then he gets onto another electric car and he gets pulled along uh, as James McAvoy has been pulled along, uh, walking along it, like, you know, behind him, we'll say, or yeah, yeah, behind him. And he gets off that. So there's all these transfers of his, like, it was, he said he actually... I love those behind-the-scenes tapes where they show you sort of the dance that goes on in order to sort of... Uh, to pull off everything that they need in shot at that specific time and sort of the, the transfer of jumping from one, you know, um, rig to the next rig and handing the camera over or or stepping onto things and yeah. stepping off things. It's always so, like, incredible. It's like Cirque du Soleil stuff. Yeah, that's an amazing one. It really is. The, just the behind, just the execution of that is so impressive. And I was just, uh, you know, I, you know, I have such an appreciation for their, for that craft and that ability. Um, and again, the reason the reason for doing it, you know, was one I suppose ty- stylistically is quite nice. Nice, and he said it. He he, he brought it. Peter Robson said it, said it himself. He said some directors just see these shots as trophy shots. You know, as in, you know, just to kind of like be stylish, just for the sake of being stylish, rather than adding something to the story. You know, and yeah. in the case of The Shining, Kubrick employed it really well. Like he drew us in. He kind of used it to kind of draw us into the world from the point of view of Danny. And it was really effective when, you know, something really abnormal and terrifying emerged in the world. Um, but I think that one was really, um, I, I really like the Atonement one. It's really, really cool. Yeah, it's great. Um, the one that I was also going to mention more. as like a, a backup to, uh, if it wasn't going to be Halloween that you uh, tipped me off on, um, I was going to mm-hmm. mention like Children of Men because Alfonso Cuaron oh, has yeah. a lot of... Um, he does a lot of uh, sort of long takes as well. You know, Gravity, he's got that the famous opening where it's all one take. Uh, but the one in the car where Julianne Moore, spoilers, if you've not seen it from, it's 2006, so I think people have seen it, where yeah. Julianne Moore gets killed. And the the long take takes place in the actual car. And if you've ever seen how, they, how they've done that, it's it's remarkable. It's it's sort of like chairs will fold back and Julia Moore will go flat and she'll be pulled out to the side and the camera, the whole roof will open up and um, as the camera turns back around, Julia Moore will slide back in on this little track and extend her seat upright again. So you think that, you know, it, it, it's like a, a trick shot as well as being like a long mm-hmm. extended, um, unedited take. It's, it's 
a really spectacular shot. So that was going to be like my backup one, but I don't know where your head was at with. Um, oh yeah, I love it. I and I love that one. Like what you're describing there is like it's that movie magic stuff, isn't it? It's yeah. the stuff where you go. It's like Jesus. The 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 execution of you know the execution of the trick is so impressive that you will watch the behind the scene making I think it's on YouTube you can, you can look it up if anyone sort of is curious to see it but um, just Google sort of how they did that shot and it'll show you this sort of like the orchestration that was involved it's amazing and in the middle of that Alfonso Cruan uh, I think it like it took them 12 days to kind of get that done and wow, they shit. finally almost yeah they finally almost got the shot they wanted but when when the when um, a significant character is shot, um, blood hit, blood splattered off her squib and hit the lens, and <laughs> Quran just went ah screw it. Uh, Alfonso Quran showed cool, cut like you know it takes takes one, and the director of photography or the the people just ignored him and they just kept rolling, and as a yeah. result it ended up making the scene even more visceral and even more impactful like you know yeah um, that, it's been copied so many times now where they do sort of like the CGI blood on the screen. But uh, yeah, it's completely it's accidental. Brilliant. I love that. It's completely accidental. Yeah, it's fantastic. It really is. It's an amazing film. And <laughs> I dropped my phone and no, we can't edit that out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just hope you didn't I drop it into list, a glass of water. <laughs> I made a list of like ones where I thought like, oh, just in case we, we, we skip over anything. But um you know, we never no, sort of, that's good. we never prep these episodes. We never know what the other person is going to say. So it's always like, yeah. you're always sort of wondering, do I, do I jump in here? Or is this going to sort I, of tread on their toes <laughs> later on? So the minute yeah. I said children of okay men, I thought, oh, shit, maybe that's Will's pick. And I've just sort of fucked them over now. <laughs> no, it's not. I was glad you brought it up because I was looking at my list and I went, geez, I forgot to add it on my list. <laughs> I was like, so I'm so glad you brought it up, Kevin. I'll um, mention another one but just uh, now because yeah. I know that you will do. bring this one up. Because uh, I don't think you've seen it yeah. yet, but I mentioned on the Alan Smithy episode, uh, The Vast of Night mm. um, from 2019, and that has so many long extended takes. And uh, those ones are particularly impressive because it shows off the the actors and how um, skilled they are at sort of just running and running and running with this dialogue that is, is uh, it, it, it's so dense and so specific and the, the language that they're using and... Um, yeah, it, it immediately just brings you into the world where you don't feel like you're watching a film. You're sort of like transported right into that location and you're with those characters. But The Vast of Night uh, from 2019 has got a great one. And uh, and another one, I, <laughs> sorry, because we mentioned no, Halloween. Man. Go on. But because Halloween yeah. was sort of famous for having in that opening extended uh, one-take shot, they tried to do uh, one similar in the, the 2018 version. So they have that really long right. extended take where Michael... Myers turns up on Halloween night and he sort of goes on a, on a murder spree, sort of uh, stalking around the, the Haddonfield borough, just killing everybody. And I think they shot yes. that as well over the course of a few nights and they did like 60 takes. So these things, like wow. when they pull them off and you see them in a film, you just go with it, but you don't realise how long it takes to sort of like perfect them and to get them right. So there must be, yeah. you know, can you imagine you're on like take 35 and you're thinking, shit. Do we keep going? Mm-hmm. Have have we got it? Because you can't hide it. Maybe we can get it right on the next one. Nope. Take 42. Oh, fuck, oh, man. man. This is never going to work. We're going to have to cut it from the schedule. So uh, that's the confidence of a, of a director and a, and a production where they're like, no, we're, we're doing this. We're going to get it right. 
let's keep going. Yeah. And then wow. we see the version which is like the one that has the fewest mistakes in it. <laughs> but yes, uh, yes. yeah, they're, they're, I love the they're pure cinema because it's like it's all about the the whole team working as one to sort of bring off this amazing sort of moment that you don't realise uh, in most cases that it's all happened in front of you in one take. Yeah, just like this podcast. It's all like, just you know, like this, this is literally just evolving. <laughs> it's just one take. No mistakes. And it's really lovely. But, you know, you, you lead me on to another, because so I'm going to kind of, I'm trying to go through my honourable mentions. There's no rhyme or reason, but basically I'm following the flow of conversation. And one that popped into my head that only became possible, again, was due to the evolution of technology. And it was from 2002, I believe, and it's um, a film Russian Ark. Right. So um, mm. made by um, Alexander Sorokov. And it was basically it, before 2000, before the early 2000s, it really wouldn't have been possible uh, because of film stock. Because as we already mentioned with Alfred Hitchcock, he could only shoot for 10 minutes and they would have to do, you know, imaginary cuts. But Alexander, but what we had in the early 2000s was the evolution of digital cameras. And um, as a result, they were able to go for, you know, almost, an, an, not an infinite take, but they could basically shoot for 100 minutes before the memory of the camera would be full. <laughs> That's <laughs> a fact. So they knew they had 100 minutes, right? And what uh, Russian Ark is, is basically a film that's set in a museum in, um, I can't remember actually which, what, what museum it is, but it's, um, you follow a ghost as he takes you through this, this museum, which uh, which basically flows through 300 years of Russian history. And it is amazing. It is amazing. Wow, it is that does sound amazing. Live, in one take. It's beautiful. It's like watching Barry Lyndon, you know, a one take Barry Lyndon almost going where you have people like big, they were big ballroom scenes and there's big, there's lots of music and there's, it's very, it's very simple, like, you know, but it's beautiful and breathtaking to behold. And you were talking about mistakes. And the one thing they did in, they had only, because it's set in this museum, they only had three days to actually set up the shots um, because they, the museum was an open and active museum. So literally they closed the museum and the entire team had to come in and set the whole place up for one night of shooting. And they had to like build the sets and wire the lights and wire everything and have the costumes already and have like I I think it was something like two thousand extras, two thousand extras, wow. yeah, had to come together to make all of these set pieces work. Like we're talking big. It's not like a small intimate like two people in a room sort of stuff. These no, is it's a like big a flash ballroom period. Oh, it's amazing! It really is just to watch it as an execution. It's amazing, but the one a trick mo- that they had to pull off. Go on. Uh, no, uh, uh, keep going because I, I was just gonna. I was gonna mention. Um, well, uh, keep going, and then I, I start talking. No, uh, in hard boiled, okay. hard boiled, the hospital yeah. sequence where they go into the elevator, and you think as you're watching it, or I think as I'm watching it, that the elevator has gone up a level, but um, because yeah. you know there's a big shootout that happens, they go into the elevator, they're arguing with each other, uh, they're loading up, the doors open, and it's obviously a different level, and they start firing and shooting up there. Um, but it's not, it's, it's the same, it's a stage. So as the doors close, all the crew run in and they start pulling out walls and swapping, um, moving in furniture to make it look like the elevators landed on a different floor. So, um, it's that stuff. It's, it's, uh, there was a, there was an amazing, um, Spike Jones commercial 
that I can't remember the yeah. name of it now, but if you look up Spike Jones sort of one take commercials, all the trick shots that they do, uh, like the mm. Weezer, the Weezer music videos, all the sort of um, the Rube Gold, Rube Gold, I can't even say it, the Rube Goldberg machine type thing that they do, mm. um, all the sort of like yeah, uh, all done in one. It's that sort of stuff on on a film set. But uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. you're saying Russian Ark has has that on on a spectacularly huge scale. I know. I want. There is another thing I want to say about Russian Ark. Oh, that that the, the elevator thing and hardboiled. That elevator door. The elevator doors were only closed for twenty seconds. So the crew had <laughs> twenty seconds to clean up the set. It was amazing. It was. I would say it would have been easier to just build a lift and build a second floor and build a second set. I don't know why they didn't do that. It but reminds it was just me of that twenty moment. seconds and they did it. It reminds me of that moment in Poltergeist where um, uh, the mother is sort of um, just chatting to the kid at the at the, the over the breakfast. I think as as everyone has gone oh, to school yeah. and gone to work, and um, uh, the camera just stays on her as she goes and takes something out of a, a drawer, and she looks back, and suddenly all the chairs in the kitchen are stood on on the table. And uh, yeah, it's another mm. thing of like just in the three seconds it took for the camera to pan across and then pan back. Like 16 crew members just ran in and meticulously sort of like uh, built the chairs uh, on top of the... Oh no, I think all the chairs were stuck together. So they just all ran in and just put the chair on top of the, the really? table. But everyone else had to had to remove the chairs that were there. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Like, That's so br- if you were to hear the actual sound, it's like, go! And it's like feet scrambling and doors slamming and move, move, move. And uh, yeah, I love that stuff. And That's isn't the, 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 the effects of that of a film set? The effect of that is far more effective than a simple cut and a simple turnaround cut. You know that was because you know it's one continuous shot. You, you the impact of that is it's terrifying because yeah, you're we were going. It's, how did because, they do that? Yeah, and also from let's say from an audience point of view, you're in there going, Hold, "I was I was over here. I was just there with her." I was just over there. We went to the thing and we turned around. There was no cut and it happened. You almost yeah. kind of feel like a ghost did, that they did actually capture. That's how you can, I think that's how ghost films, how you can really pull off ghost stuff is by actually pull that, pulling that trickery off in camera without cuts and all that sort of stuff. And actually, um, I think that's when it, it's really, really effective. Um, Definitely. Oh, my point, my point about the Russian arc was that the only trickery they pulled with Russian, Russian arc is that they didn't record the sound live. And the reason they didn't record the sound live was chaos. because the director was swearing so much and there was so much chaos. They were literally shouting at each other, you go over here, shut the fuck up, you get over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. They were literally, he was literally screaming at everyone. <laughs> so they, they basically ADR'd or did, did all the post sound and post, like, you know. But everything else is shot, like, in the floor. David Fincher does that as well, though. Like, he's got one in, in Panic Room. Um, but, you know, he ADRs all of his films at this point. He does everything in post-production and he stabilizes the camera there's all these sort of like little tricks that people don't realize are being done but yeah he doesn't believe wow. in well i don't I, I shouldn't say things as uh factual statements when i'm just sort of passing off hearsay but i think oh no we're just he um he uh prefers to do all of the uh dialogue um in post mm-hmm. to adr it essentially because uh, he prefers wow. the, the, the sound quality um, but he's a perfectionist, so yeah. Panic Room's got one, but um, yeah, that was one I was going to mention as well. There's I, another I one mention, I wanted. Can I? Yeah. Go. Uh, well, 
We mentioned Protector, didn't we, in the fight scenes uh, episode? Yes, which is we did. one long yeah. steady cam shot, which is a great one to watch. Um, and, and I, Kevin, I learned in researching this, I learned that they fired the first three steady cam operators because they couldn't keep up with the the action. They literally <laughs> were exhausted. Yeah, they got on the third one. The third one they hired was the guy who could keep up with the 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 the, the pace. Of it. So that's the a speed that was one of my long list. Yeah, it's amazing. That's an amazing one. I was going to mention um, The Player by Robert Altman's The Player, yeah. which opens with a long, long, long take. And the, the, long, the meta thing for this episode is that in it, one of the characters actually talks about um, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil opening with a, that's a seven minute long take or five <laughs> minutes. I don't know. It's, it's a long one, you know? But you know and what? I read slowly- on that when I was looking it up, someone said... Uh, or someone wrote that all the um, dialogue in that opening was ad-libbed. So people were just yeah, ad-libbing I, I, moments. I learned that too. Yeah, completely improvised dialogue. But the <laughs> most important thing about that is that we're flowing through. Again, it's the movement going through this backlot, backlot scenario where you get to feel the artifice of how nice and beautiful and California and sunny it all is. But as you get closer into the, the meetings and uh, to Those Timothy, horrible um, pitches. Tim Robbins, the horrible <laughs> the pitches and then graduate the too. lovely... The, the graduate too <laughs> and like he's literally pitching is that the one where he can pitch any headline from a newspaper and turn it into a movie Does, who needs writers that's basically what it is and yeah. there's a poor writer in with him trying to pitch to him that was the one that broke my art this writer okay I've got this and he's like just pitching his heart out like you know for all these different you know and the exec is Timmy Robbins is just literally just going yeah whatever can I tell you just as an aside that when I was an intern in yeah. LA I used to have to sit in on meetings um right. I think just his work experience, and I'm not going to say where, um, but it's mm-hmm. a it's a producer that won an Academy Award, and okay. they were having um, writers come in to pitch on a rewrite, and the producer uh, would throw out these terrible suggestions, and you know I was sitting there over the course of like three or four days watching all these different writers come in, and they don't know who you are. Obviously, they're they're looking around the room for sort of friendly eyes, and I am you know pretending mm. to. Um, to be an ally in the room when really I had no power whatsoever. I was there to get water and uh, uh, get coffee and what have you. But the producer would throw out terrible ideas and uh, just to see how they'd respond to the suggestion that he was making. And um, afterwards, people, you know, there'd be some of them that would say, that's a great idea. We could do this, we could do that. And then there'd be others that would say, I'm not sure about that because what we could do instead but no matter what they said, and this was the scary thing for me, you know, when I started to to, to write myself, was that um, if they agreed with him, he thought they had no spine, and if they disagreed with him, he thought that they were um, they were uh, too intractable in their in their beliefs, and they would they would be difficult to work with. So it was a lose lose scenario, okay. and I thought, why is he playing these fucking mind games with people? But uh, the player was okay. um, a very good satirical take on <laughs> close to home <laughs> yeah. yeah but you know yeah. what the satisfying thing about the, that opening shot of the player well, we'll, cu- we'll cut all that the, out well we, we well with the satisfying thing about the player is that when you when we get to the very end of that final shot you're on a cl- kind of a close-up through the window and tim robbins's character has got, got a postcard in his hand and it's a death threat or you know a kind of a death threat and you go ah it, it ends with 
it ends with intrigue. It's not just a kind of a, a moving shot for the sake of a moving, or like a long take for the sake of a long. It ends, it draws you into the world and it ends with a point of like, ah, you know, there's a death threat is afoot. And again, yeah. it's just, it's it's intriguing. It's intriguing. And it's it's like, it's, it, they're, they're great ways of like us bringing you into an, envir- an, an environment, introducing you to this kind of space, you know? And it's really, really cool. Um, there's other ones. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, we have to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson and Boogie Nights, yeah. of course. That's one that has to be But mentioned. which one in Boogie um, Nights do you like? Because there are two really brilliant ones one. in Boogie Nights. The second one. The second one, yeah. yeah. See, I was going to say the second one as well, but that opening as well. Yeah. Uh, with that great music and you're, you're just sort of like following Roller Girl and, and you're meeting all the cast. Uh, what a what a audacious way to open a movie. I love it. Yeah, and the second one then is basically we're at a party and we're following. We end up if the party is really fun, but we start following William H Macy's character, who's a <laughs> you know a cuckold's husband. And it's a New Year's party. I can't quite remember right now, but everything is going fun. And he he opens the door of a bedroom and he finds his wife, you know, having sex. And he just he doesn't react. He just turns Isn't around. Isn't she and he a walks real porn star as well? Or she was a porn star? I'm pretty sure she, she was a, she was an actual porn star. Um, Quite possibly, I don't know, <laughs> but it's the it's the but how that again that that's just you know it was an amazing one because we're I in wouldn't his know brain, well, I never watched brain. Porn. <laughs> You just make it. <laughs> um, well, no, cut that. you know, that's what the reviews. That's what the review said. Uh, yeah, but what's but that's really a great, affecting? Great what's really come long take. Yeah, it's when we follow him, we follow him out and he gets a gun, goes in and emotionlessly, you know, shoots them both. And it really shatters this, you know, the the, the space of this party. You feel like you're at you. That's the that's the effect. The whole movie takes shots, a turn, you feel like it? you're in the space. The whole thing kind of pivots at that moment, like, you know. So um, I think that's a that's the one that really stand, stood out to me from that film. Yeah. So you've got we've mentioned Kubrick, the Palmer. Curon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who else is there? Orson Welles. Anderson. Orson Welles. Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, I think there's there's one, uh, well, you know, because we sort of, we're, we're very much like Hollywood junkies. We love all the Western cinema. Tarkovsky obviously had uh, some great ones. Godard did as well. One. In The weekend. Yeah. But I... Uh, Tarkovsky's in the, the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are amazing as well, just for like, you know, it feels like you're seeing money actually being burned literally being burned on uh, camera and you wonder like if they don't get that right they're going to have to and they did in some uh, instances have to sort of rebuild the actual barn or the house yeah. or what have you and set fire to it again but um, I think there's incredible. one it is I think there's one name that we haven't mentioned uh, that, yes uh, and that's going to be my best my app. best bit <laughs> yeah we're coming to it and it's my best bit right and it's got to be the, the 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 Copa Cabana shot in Goodfellas, and that is my best bit. And I have got things to say because I learned stuff about this that just opened my eyes, and I was like, going, "Wow, that's." I know, I know one little thing about it, but I remember that shot being shown to us in college um, as sort of like a, an amazing Steadicam moment. And uh, yeah, it still holds up. Nineteen ninety, you'd think that Goodfellas was like mid to late nineties, but nineteen ninety, it's such a timeless film. 
And it's you know, only uh, you know a short seven years later, Paul Thomas Anderson is is homaging him in in Boogie Nights with the same type of shot. Definitely. And of course, it's it's a sh- it's everyone knows it's the shot where Henry Hill has taken his wife um, Karen, uh, played by oh god Lor- Lorraine Blanco, Lorraine right? Lorraine Lorraine Blanco, the Bla- uh, therapist Bla- from Bla- Sopranos. Sopranos. He's taken her on their on her first proper date because their first their their first date was a disaster, and he now he truly wants to try and win her over, and he basically doesn't. He goes into the hottest nightclub, the Coca Cabana, not through the front door but down through the basement and in through the. He tips everyone along the way and in through the, in through the um the kitchen where he knows all the the staff and he emerges on the on the um on the, the main floor where the show is in full swing and yeah. he tips another guy and the other guy, you know, clicks his fingers and a, a waiter comes forward with a, with a table, with the, with the, 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 the tablecloth just floating off it like a, like a cape and places it right up the front, right in front of the, um, the, 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 the comedian and the comedian like winks and nods to um, Henry Hill and Lorraine Blanco at that moment sits beside him and she says, what do you do again? (laughs) And you know that she's in love, you know, and of course the soundtrack is amazing at that moment as well. But, and it is an utterly amazing shot. It really is. But But what do you, what, what are the things you want to say about that? Uh, well, I, I don't know if you know it as if you probably know it as well, but once it gets pointed out to you, it kind of like fucks with your head a little bit. So every time I, I rewatch Goodfellas, and it is yes. like one of the most rewatchable films ever, but now every time I watch that shot, after being told um, that yeah. they go, the, the way that they come in is also the way that they go out. Uh, in the um, yeah. as they walk into the kitchen, that they actually just do a three sixty and they come right back to the same uh, door. <laughs> That when you watch it, now you're thinking like, "What the fuck are they doing?" Like they could have just, they could have just kept going straight, but no, they go in, they go left, they go right, they go right, they go right, they go right, they go left. And it's like, okay, yeah. But you're you're so sort of happens. caught up by all the the sort of like the the chaos of the kitchen and and all that's going on and all the sort of like asides where he's showing off by um, tipping people and what have you. You you don't notice I, it on on a first watch. You don't. And I loved the genesis of this because this shot wasn't intended to go that way. The reason they went and did this was because they actually weren't allowed shoot uh, going through the main door of the Coco Cabana. So they actually had me. to go down that way. Yeah, this is this is what happened. So they had to go. They had to figure out, says, well, what way do we go in? And they said, well, he's going to... Because in the book, it just kind of like glosses over it and says, yeah, we greased a lot of pans and yeah, da, da. in the script, there's about one page dedicated to it. But then the actual execution of it was not the cinematographer. The cinematographer was the one who said, oh, Marty, we have to go into the kitchen. We have to, because all they were going to do was just go down the bottom and walk straight through that corridor and go straight onto the main floor. But it was the cinematographer who came in and he just went, look at the kitchen, look at the light. We have to come into the light. And so what they did was when the, he was so right. But then, so that's the cinematographer. And, you know, the cinematographer was great. But the cinematographer isn't the guy who actually pulled it off. The people who pulled it off were Larry McConkie, the, the Steadicam operator, and Ray Liotta. They were the ones who choreographed it because he was the one who had to... Everything, it's not Scorsese. It's not even the cinematographer. It's Larry McConkie, a name you'll probably never have known, never knew it was attached to Goodfellas. He was the guy who basically 
said, figured out, okay, I'm on the steady cam. Ray, when you go down the stairs, I need you to slow up when you go down the stairs. And Ray, Ray Liotti had the idea. He says, well, if we put a guy at the door downstairs, I can just kind of like grease his pan. And so that's why he greases so many pans. It's so the steady cam operator can catch up to him. Or this is why a cinema when, is a collaborative art form. Because it, it's, there you go, it's man. everybody working in concert. And some of the best yeah. ideas are by the people whose names will never get remembered. Uh, or brought yeah. up but yeah and oh, it's such a great moment listen to this listen to this uh, what's amazing about it is that even when they go even when they go um, in through the, the corridor they see a couple kissing the reason that happened was because Larry McConkie says to Ray Liotta Ray he says Ray I gotta see your face what can we do so you can turn to me and he says well Ray Liotta says if there's a couple here making out maybe I'll, I'll turn around and I can I can engage with them and so when they went into the kitchen they had to make it look because they were just effectively going to do a lap at the kitchen and come out the same door. But what they <laughs> did is when they went into the kitchen, the set decorators were behind them and they changed they changed the kind of like dressing on the doorway. So it made it look like it was a different doorway. And they come out onto the floor and they, uh, they basically it is in, in the script. And what happened was they recorded this, like they, they did a rehearsal of it and they showed it to Scorsese and Scorsese and Larry Conkey thought, oh, this is going to be this is all shoe leather. This is going to get fucking chopped. And he kind of had his head in his hands thinking, oh, look, that's that job wasted. So Scorsese watches it and it finishes and Scorsese goes, no, 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 no. And Larry McConkie's going, oh, God, I'm fired, I'm fired, I'm fired. And Scorsese says, no, at the end, the waiter's got to come in with the table and hold it right over his head and walk across the floor like it's gliding. Because that happened to me. I was a guy who was at the front of the stage and they came in and that and they it was just good fellas put tables in front of me and tables in front of me. And before I knew it, I was at the back of the stage. You know, he used to think he could have a seat at <laughs> the front. Other than that, he was perfect. And they shot that nine times, right? They shot it nine times and they got it. Ray Liotta and Larry McConkie got it right every time. But do you know why they had to do it, redo it in nine times? The uh, reason being was because, I'll tell you, the reason being is because, remember, there's a stand-up guy on the stage that they go to and he says, take my wife, please. No, take her, or whatever he says. Yeah. He kept fluffing his lines. He oh, kept God. fluffing his lines. <laughs> they had to redo the whole thing because of him, and they couldn't digitally screw it up. Um, uh, that's so, yeah, Larry pick. McConkey. Larry McConkey and Goodfellas, you know, that's the that's the guy. Not Scorsese, Larry McConkey. That's the guy. There we um, go. But also and that's I want to give hour. that's one hour done. But hey, I wanna I also want to I also want to, you know, you know, champion I also want to champion um Gareth Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, who Gareth Brown went on to Doc basically Brown. revolutionize Doc Brown. He revolutionized how we watch sports today because he may he is if you watch any sporting match, do you know those those yeah, sky yeah. cameras over a football match? He did he invented those. He invented a camera that goes down with divers at the Olympics. He basically invented a camera for each sport in the Olympics. Any professional sport, Larry um, Garrett, um, or Garrett Great Brown Scott. invented. Yeah, he was an amazing dude, and he shot he shot <laughs> physically. He was the guy who shot the you know in Raider in Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, the uh, going through Ender, the speeder chase scene in Ender. Never seen it. But there's you should see it. It's Star Wars, right? You should check it out. It's really interesting. It might be up your alley. <laughs> but there's an Ender speeder chase scene. I'll make that's it. That's all steady cam. That was that was Gareth Brown. There was um he did that all, wasn't Gareth Brown. That was all uh, that was all um uh rear projection. Don't lie to me though. That was 
they weren't no. they weren't actually you know on another speeder bike going at like 150 no. miles an hour to the woods. <laughs> they were when they were doing the, the 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 going through the woods he was the one carrying the bloody camera going through the woods oh um, um, okay and he also he was there on temple of doom he was on the on the rope bridge on temple of doom with his steady camera oh and, my um so god yeah he couldn't have paid me yeah. to have walked out on that bridge forget it he said he had to run across it and he said it was ro- it was you know to to excuse the pun it was ropey um <laughs> actually in this economy guy. you probably could pay me to do it <laughs> <laughs> a fascinating guy but kevin yes that is um an hour over an hour of us on editors chat about oh, um one take shots did um, we do okay well done larry for our final episode <laughs> I thought that was alright. Usually, this would get chopped down to like, and he'd come out with like a forty-minute episode. 40 but minutes, uh, so. this is, uh, this is, yeah, it's the end of season one, isn't it? Or yeah, is it it's the end of season one? <gasps> what do you mean? I, well, I thought we were burning the wheel. I thought the wheel was going to be put in the in the closet, and that was well, that was it. It turns out we don't need the wheel for the end of this episode. Because, oh, well, God. you can tell right. them, Will, what have we got? Because our now new friends at the wonderful, fun film podcast, Clash of the Titles, have reached out to us and challenged us to come up with a an episode based on a topic that they have selected. So I think it's just the easiest thing to play that clip and let them speak for themselves. Hello, Kevin and Will. Chris, Vicky and Alex here from Clash of the Titles. Big fans of the show and truly honoured that you are dropping the best bit spinning wheel for one week and allowing us to choose your category. After hours of discussion and debate, we've decided on best robot scene. But team, what should that include? Alex, do cyborgs, androids, synthetics and replicants all count? Yes, I'm going to say yes. I think, you know, let's let's throw a, a lot into the mix here. I mean, I want Bishop from Aliens to be considered. I want uh, Roger Hauer in Blade Runner as an option. So, yeah, the replicant there, synthetic there. So, cool. yeah. Vicky, as someone who won't use home tech and isn't a fan <laughs> of Alexa, does AI count? Uh, no, because I don't know what that means. Okay. AI does count. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned a couple of specific scenes you'd like to hear, see. Uh, I want, yeah, I absolutely want uh, one of the most terrifying robots in cinema history for me. Based on the fact that I watched it when I was quite young, but I just—it's <clears> so scary the scene, and it's such a scary robot. And I want some discussion about Ed Two Hundred Nine in the original RoboCop. And they, you know what? They've already mentioned at Talk of Ed Two Hundred Nine in their practical effects episode. But okay. we want—we want more RoboCop and more Ed Two Hundred Nine, Vicky. Um, I really think we should talk about Short Circuit too. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Um, when Johnny Five gets smashed to bits. Because when you asked me this, that's just where my mind went straight away and then I nearly started crying. So okay. I would like to see... I've buried that, actually. I'd only just re- remembered that scene. Why not, uh, why not, if we're doing AI, which it sounds like uh, we are, including... <laughs> it's not us doing I mean, it. I mean, I'm not doing it. Do Demon Seed. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I there. can't believe you said that. I went there. But speaking of horrible things, um, the guys have already spoken about Superman 3 Robot that scared the proverbial out of me on their questionable scenes for kids episode so the only one i'd want to add to the list is uh the shit robot from the start of rocky 4 oh yeah oh, so we've, we've picked a lot of shit here so obviously uh guys feel free to ignore these suggestions as it's your podcast rather than ours but thanks again for letting us choose the category and good luck picking your best robot scene so there we have it we are being dragged back by the good people of clash of the titles chris alex and vicky 
for one more round, just when we thought we were done and too old for this shit, they pull us back in. And why specifically did they pick Robot Scene, Kevin? Because they're doing, uh, as next week's episode, they're doing Terminator versus Terminator 2. Now, I don't know how you possibly pick which is the better of those two films, but uh, they've tasked us um, with coming up with the best robot scene. So, you know, we've got cyborgs, synthesoids, droids, uh, uh, replicants. Um, We've got... We've got friendly droids, evil. Dro- we've got friendly robots, evil robots. We've got a lot of um, a lot of uh, choice there. So we're gonna we're gonna tackle that. So that'll be our, our final episode. Oh Thanks to uh, Clash of the Titles, which you know is definitely worth mm. subscribing to. So yeah, we're back next week for our very, for our actual final episode, actual- which will be best robot scene, and then we're off for the summer <laughs> holidays. Kevin, I've literally just burned my film encyclopedias. They're, they're literally, you can see the, the bonfire is, uh, you know, happening out, out the back right now. I've, and I pulled the fire alarm in the house, you know, in, in our temple. And, um, oh, I don't want to be called at the principal's office. Oh, God. <laughs> this is going to be awkward when I have to come back in. But it's great. I'm, I'm delighted. It's so, um, I, 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 this is so exciting, you know, to, to, to be doing this. Um, you know, with them, and I can't wait to hear what they say about Terminator and Terminator Two because yeah, how do you separate them? I, I'm um, afraid that I would have to go with Terminator for that, just because um, uh, it was the first one, and I think that um, always what comes first uh, should come out on top, regardless of whether it gets perfected later on. That's just my personal <laughs> preference. Even though I probably like Terminator Two more, but I would, in that scenario, I would go with uh, Terminator. I'm going Terminator 2. Sorry. It's amazing. I have to leave it with that. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, next week we'll be back for episode 17. The end of season 1. Best robot scene. Yeah. So, we'll see you then. And don't forget to do all our... Um, oh, yeah. Forgot all that. Follow that, us on... Yeah, you can cut where, this in Kevin, Like, subscribe, Kevin. share, email us. <laughs> uh, follow me, Kevin Lee Han, on Twitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Willem's Film, Twitter, Best Bits Pod. Email bestbitspod uh, at gmail.com. Five and, stars, uh, five stars, five stars. Us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Five stars, that's the only way to go. Uh, and thanks so much for listening. And um, we'll say our proper, you know, goodbye, you know, for the season next week. But um, yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it. A proper edited, not just a, a one take, one hit wonder, properly edited show next week. Cool. Okay, back to one. We got to do this whole episode again. <laughs> did i fluff my line at the very end god damn it i fluffed the last bit just like that goddamn comedian and goodfellas god damn it the best bits podcast is produced by will and kevin all audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended if you enjoyed this episode please like share subscribe race review all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. Fuck off. <laughs> Talk to you, you stupid cunt. The best
As fuck with Kevin Lee Hand. Jesus. How are you, Will? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm grand. Did you like that theme tune? I love that theme tune. It might have been my favourite so far. Uh, <laughs> I think it was as well. <laughs> definitely, I'd say it's definitely your favourite. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I was at one of the great Irish traditions at the weekend. My niece's communion down at Cork. Cork. Go on. I can't wait. Well, I want to say this, right? Kevin just slips limply. <laughs> I said to my I, I said to my daughter uh, in school on Monday mornings they do news. What's your news, right? Nudes and bio. And my my daughter said she kept my picture up from school, and she said um, I said did you do your news today? And she says yeah, but I didn't really get to say much of what I wanted to, to tell him. You know, so she wanted to tell him about the trip down to Cork, like, you know. And as it has... It's the, just, just a ploy for the teacher to get all the gossip about the kids. Yeah, I think all the teachers do it. All the teachers get their children to do news on a Monday morning and they just get all the gossip. My mum and dad were recently head off each other on Saturday night <laughs> and on Sunday they went for dinner to make up. Oh, very good. <laughs> Carmel, do you have any news? My dad crashed the car, kid. <laughs> Let me tell you, right? So Ellie said to me, she said, no, I didn't really get to say much, like, you know. And I went, oh, well, thank God, like, you know. But then as it turned out, it turned out she said everything. She was like going, oh, we talked about, you know, your, I, I, I said, well, thank God you didn't get to tell me about my, my shaving foam exploding in my, in my changing bag. She says, oh, I did get to tell him that. I was like, oh, right. Okay. Well, did you tell him about, you know, your, your cousin, you know, the girl who was getting her communion, breaking her leg the night before the communion. Oh yeah, I told her, told him that as well. I was like, okay, right. Did you tell him about? <laughs> did you tell him? So turns out, turns out that my guns <laughs> at the last communion, at the last communion, right? They had a photographer. A, a photographer came over and took photographs. And right, listen, this, listen. I can see he wants to cut in, but let me just finish this, and I'll be, I'll get off it. We'll start the timer. As we kind of got together for Time a photograph of me. And my niece, no, hold on, with my niece, right? He drops the camera, right? He drops the camera and he says to me, love the podcast. And I was, what? <laughs> he just, Another fella yeah. said that to you. Well, it was the same guy who said, remember I, t- I said two years ago. She's still listening. Nieces, I don't know if he's Fucking still listening. Oh, well, he said it to me two years ago. So he pr- he's probably not listening anymore. Are we on a delay? No. <laughs> Oh, no. I think we might be because we're tripping over each other. Okay, let's let's uh, hang up and join again. How does that sound? This sounds fantastic. Many bits. Welcome to the best bits Patreon. Give us money. 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 Hello, Will. How are you? Hi. It's great to get on mic for another mini bits. Yeah. Raw. 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 Does that seem better? That does seem better. Listen, oh, I've okay. seen a load of stuff. Let's start the timer. Okay, I saw Monkey Man, I saw Civil War, I saw Conor Brian Must Go, Sugar, mm-hmm. Fallout, Ripley, the Steve Martin documentary, tons of stuff. L- yeah. la- Late Night with the Devil, I keep wanting to say Last Night with the Devil, Baby Reindeer, The Jinx has come back. So I want to talk about all of those with you. So that's what we're going to talk about. And yeah. for those who aren't on the Patreon, bye-bye. <laughs> Look, tough look. 